Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. Until I read today's guest's recent book that came out in February, I believe the two most powerful lobbies and their new PR arm supporting big hospitals was the alpha lobby on the planet. After all, they got a no-strings-attached Marshall Plan bailout that the bigs never needed. The rural hospitals certainly did, but the bigs never needed it. And now I see, after reading this book, that the pharma lobby and long-game strategy is much more dark and sinister and pervasive force, and that arguably has eroded most of what was uniquely American about the greatest healthcare on the planet, which is equal access for all, freedom of speech, and basic civil liberties, freedom from tyranny, let us call it wealth care versus poor care. Because we do have two systems of care, and they've been bifurcating now for 40 years, and it's splitting us apart as a nation, and it's bankrupting us. And pharma burst it. I'm convinced of that now. So let's flash forward to 2021, right in the heart of the pandemic, four bigs settled for $26 billion, an opioid class action claim, which is by far the biggest in history of any kind of settlement or criminal penalty. And because it happened in a pandemic, it was a blip in the news cycle. So to compare it in the past 20 years, we saw about 90 to $116 billion in fines and settlements by bigs in healthcare, mostly pharma at $85 billion in dozens of class action suits and state AG actions of civil fraud and yes, criminality. So in context, over 20 years, $116 billion is under 1% of the 20 year profits, not the revenues, the profits of pharma alone, not to mention big devices or big hospitals. The big bad boy hall of fame is J and J and 21 with a $5 billion tag. They're in the VIP room all by themselves, but there's four bad boys in the $2 billion club, and that's GSK in 12, Pfizer in 09, J&J in 13, and HCA in 02. But the three biggest metals that got hit the hardest by that opioid were Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and the drug company McKesson, Big Pharma. They were part of a $21 billion settlement in that opioid blip. So, but Pfizer stands alone as the largest criminal fine in U.S. history, and today's guest was an expert witness in that and 14 other of these litigation actions against pharma. Well, how dare I demonize the great American innovators and employers, the greatest taxpayers ever. They fund all this published research in our esteemed journals. Okay, forget me. Listen to what the journals say. This is from the BMJ just a month ago. Evidence-based medicine is an illusion. That's a quote. Now I'm going to quote Richard Horton, the editor-in-chief of The Lancet, and he says, the case against science is straightforward. Much of the scientific literature, perhaps half, may simply be untrue. And Catherine DeAngelis, the editor-in-chief of JAMA, in case The Lancet's not enough for you, says, don't believe anything, not one thing put out by pharmaceutical companies. 
Just don't believe it. You start from there. Okay, let's go back to the 116 billion in fines and settlements as a visual because it's hard to see in our head. 116 billion are dollar bills stacked 8,000 miles high. 8,000 miles as a visual is more than the width of the US and China and Europe combined. 116 billion grains of sand would fill a football field size box by three dimensions. I guess you're not getting it still, but it doesn't matter. Put another way, this amount of fines and settlements could run every government on the planet except for the top 10% per year. 90% of the global governments could run on $116 billion. It's a lot of money, but it's not. When you look at what JAMA did, they did an 18 year farm of profit analysis from 2000 and 2018, and they just looked at the 35 biggest of the bigs. Now remember there's over 451 pharma companies, but just taking the 35 monsters, they had 8.6 trillion in profits and the fines then represent less than one and a half percent of their profits for that period. So that's a 1% tip for an unprecedented epic and historic civil and criminal malfeasance. So let's shift the focus to put pharma profits in context versus the larger economy. Think Silicon Valley margins. Now this is Professor Fred Ludley from Bentley University and he told Newsweek this year that the net income margins reported by the 35 pharma companies between 2000 and 2018 was twice as high as all the rest of the S&P 500. So big pharma averages a little over almost 14% and the rest of the S&P 500 averages under 8%. He says the pharma company's profits are indistinguishable statistically from those of big tech. Okay, one last camera angle on this movie, taxes. At least these big boys pay their taxes for the privilege to base here where 4.5% of the world consumes 40% of global meds. So if Ukraine is Europe's and Middle East's breadbasket, America is Big Pharma's breadbasket. It turns out, like Big Tech, Big Pharma are master tax dodgers. Their tax rates hover in the mid-single-digit territory. Listener, would you like to pay 6 to 7% in taxes? Simple. Hire Big Pharma's tax advisors and set up shop in Ireland or somewhere else offshore. A disturbing afterthought. Our tap water, our bottled waters, our unregulated drug dispensaries. Everybody listening this morning that doesn't have a whole house filter took drugs, whether they wanted to or not. They're known in the nomenclature as APIs, which are active pharmaceutical ingredients. They're in our water, they're in our foods. They're on every global waterway tested last year of 1,000 waterways except for two. They're egregious in America because of the volume of meds we take in proportion to our population. I should say meds, it's really APIs to be accurate. So the EPA and the FDA are supposed to regulate our tap and our bottled water, and there's no metric for APIs. Edward Deming said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. The last EPA drinking water mandate was in 2004, uranium. 36 years after the Cuban Missile Crisis that 10 triggered a bunch of endless studies, the feds finally moved kind of slow, but they do move. Okay, so we consume 40% of every pill, drip, and shot on the planet, yet are only 4.5% of the world population. That bears repeating. And we don't metabolize all of those meds. They become then part of the great water circle of life and runoff and sewers and rain and snow, surface and underground. These meds are found in every remote stream and every remote lake, Montana to Colorado to Alaska. 
Nowhere is safe. And chlorinating water does nothing to APIs. Maybe it even binds poorly into toxins or miracle drugs. We simply don't know. There were not, nobody studying this. So you today showered in and drank in this order of magnitude, APIs active in estrogen, antidepressants, heart and diabetes and hypertension meds. And yes, somewhere down the line, you drank opiates. A little of it. This is a fact. So as I said to Jeremy, when we brought, mentioned this last time, we need a whole house filter water sponsor at this point. Okay, I don't know, man. I live in a future where everybody wins, but you got to wonder about them bigs, them bigs, them bigs. So I always try to end on a happier note, and this is a harder rant to end on a high note. So here we go. Two PCPs walked into a bar. Okay, I made you smile. I'm delighted today to welcome to you and this show, Dr. John Abramson, who after completing a residency in family medicine and a two-year Robert Woods Johnson fellowship, he worked as a family physician in a small town an hour north of Boston for a couple of decades. But he's been at Harvard Medical School teaching for the last 15 years and the last few in public policy. He has become an expert in litigation involving prescription drugs and medical devices, giving him access to millions and millions of pages of confidential corporate documents and unreleased clinical trial data. Now, he can't write in his books all what he sees because he signs NDAs, but what he sees is plenty that he can talk about because it becomes part of the testimony he can talk about it. So he's also served as a consultant to the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice on a case that led to the largest criminal fine in U.S. history. Can you spell Pfizer? Dr. Abramson has published articles in medical journals and including The Lancet and the Journal of American Board of Family Medicine and JAMA and many, many others. And he was the lead author on a paper published in BMJ cited, should people at low risk of cardiovascular disease take a statin? And he did an op-ed in the New York Times that got a lot of re reaction titled, don't give more patients statins and many more other important news outlets he's written op-ed pieces in. He's been in over 75 national TV shows and he wrote uh, almost 15 years ago, Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine, and came out just this last quarter with sickening how big pharma broke American healthcare and how we can repair it. Welcome, Dr. John Abramson, to the show. Ron, thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to have you. Do you have any comments before we get going here? Well, I do. That was a nice summary. Uh, and I learned some stuff that, uh, that I didn't know. Uh, but let me say the. Um, the issue of American healthcare being the best if you have money and insurance and access um, is not true. And not only is our healthcare inferior if you're not privileged in America, but even Americans who live in the wealthiest counties don't have as good a health as the citizens of average wealth in other developed countries. So it's not like it's serving some of us who can escape the consequences of pharmaceutical companies' relentless pursuit of profit, that we can do this ourselves, because you and I understand this. We can't. I, uh, I appreciate that distinction. That's a really important point that I did not make, and I, I, I respect that distinction. I have a question that didn't come out of your book, but it came out of me because of just the research I'm always doing constantly in the wake up early in the morning and can't help but diving deep. So it turns out that what the response that a pharmaceutical company is going to give to your book, John, is they're going to say that 85% of their generics are available for pennies a pill. 
They're not the problem. The PBMs are the problem. Those darn PBMs are marking everything up and screwing up all their gaming. And shame on the PBMs. The farmers are good guys. That is what they'll say when they say anything, because so far their tactic of keeping me out of the media has been successful. So they don't have to say anything yet, but uh, hopefully that will change. And I would respond to that by saying that fact is true. 85% or 81%, I'm not sure exactly what it is, of the drugs that are used by Americans are generic drugs. And those drugs uh, tend to be lower cost than they are in the other developed countries. The problem, there's a twofold problem in the minority of the drugs that are not generic. The first problem is that there's no uh, control on price and we're the only country that does that. So brand name drugs cost three and a half times more in the United States than they do in other countries. And even though somewhere above 80% of our drugs are generic, we still spend by far the most on drugs driven by those brand name drugs that cost three and a half times as much. So price is part of the problem. But the other problem, which I think is more important and much harder to get at, is that in driving sales of those new drugs, the 11% or whatever of uh, brand name drugs, in driving those sales, the pharmaceutical industry is controlling the knowledge that doctors and everyone else has about those drugs and about how best to provide healthcare. So we've got a tail wags dog situation where the minority of drugs that are brand name drugs in the United States are driving the cost of our pharmaceuticals, but more fundal, fundamentally are driving the air quotes knowledge that doctors believe they have about those drugs and how they approach medical care. That's a deep subject. We're going to get into that. I promise. I'm going to tell you my answer to Big Pharma if they were to say those dang middlemen. I would say 85% of the scripts filtered generics or 81% as you say, but 80% of the meds spend are brands, which is your point. Right. You're saying they're buying the Humeras. They're not buying the generic equivalent or something three pennies a pill or two pennies a pill. So the volume of medication spent is in the generics that are advertised on television. So there are so many jaw droppers in your book. I want to just kind of... Ron, can we stick with that point for just a yeah, second sure, on, sure. on Humira? Because Humira is a really good fractal of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Humira has been the most heavily advertised drug between, I think, 2013 and 2018 or, or 19. Yeah. And the price went up during that period from maybe $20,000 to now it's about $72,000. And it has multiple uses, but it's first use and it's probably its primary use is for rheumatoid arthritis. In the Humira label, if people will look at this, I think it's table five of the FDA approved label. The AbbVie, the manufacturer of Humira did an honest study that compared the efficacy of, and safety of Humira to the efficacy and safety of methotrexate, which in the olden days was first-line therapy for rheumatoid arthritis after anti-inflammatory drugs. And what the FDA-approved label shows, and anyone can go look on the web for the label of, uh, of Humira and they'll find this, that methotrexate is not only not inferior, but numerically superior to Humira 
as the first line treatment for rheumatoid arthritis. Methotrexate costs about $480 a year and Humira costs about $72,000 a year. So you say, well, why can that be, how, how does that happen? And now we come back to the middlemen who make their money selling basically kickbacks to the manufacturers that are called rebates in polite society. So the, the middlemen make more money when they bring the very expensive drugs into first-line therapy. So that's why Humira is so much more used, I think, by a factor of 40 to 1 in a VA study. Humira is used as the first-line therapy instead of methotrexate. And you say, why? It's those middlemen who are making money by getting the more expensive drug into play when the less expensive drug is at least as good. And other countries that have independent health technology assessment know that. But in the United States, we have no central go-to agency for the uh, information about what the most effective and efficient therapies are. So docs are overwhelmed by the marketing. The middlemen are very happy to be selling Humira instead of methotrexate. And obviously the drug company is very pleased with this arrangement. And there you have it. That's what's going on. Well, you're talking about everybody's being co-opted. And I want to get into each one of the parties co-opted that are now relics for protecting us. Let's start with the first jaw dropper in your book that kind of woke me up to really read very carefully. You said that big pharma spends two and a half times on marketing than they do on R&D. Mm -hmm. Shocking. Correct. I thought these guys were the most research and development was their hook they hang their hat on that they're so proud of their R&D. Right. We've got lesson number one in understanding what's going on, uh, how the pharmaceutical industry is undermining American healthcare. Lesson number one is that we must remember that the pharmaceutical industry has one primary job and only one, and that is to maximize the profits that they return to their investors. That's their business. Now, they do that business by developing drugs, new drugs, maybe one out of four of them are actually superior to previously available drugs. They do it by convincing physicians and the public that the innovation that they undertake, which is very significant, it, it is what is going to lead to our health in the future. But that is a misconception. Their innovation is to make money. We've got to remember that. They'll advertise, they'll manipulate journal articles, they'll, they'll um, uh, uh, make financial relationships with key opinion leaders and nonprofit organizations they'll, and lobbyists. They'll do anything they can because their job is to make as much money as they can. And they're masters at it. They leave nothing on the table. Yeah, previous guest said we are deers in the headlight compared to them. Yep. So let's talk about what got co-opted. The medical gold standards that we say, you got to do this to get better. I, I mean, you use statins as a beautiful example, but our medical gold standards are day, today co-opted relics, aren't they? Yes. And this is the problem. And I, I confess, I found this out late in the game. Uh, it's very poorly known that uh, now... Uh, about 86% of clinical trials are commercially funded. Uh, 87% of the trials that are most cited are commercially funded. Doctors' knowledge 
comes from commercially funded trials. But that shouldn't matter because we're practicing, as you said in the intro, uh, evidence-based medicine. And regardless of who funds those studies, the discipline of evidence-based medicine ought to sort out the wheat from the chaff and leave good doctors embracing, adopting uh, knowledge that is scientifically objective. That's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. What happens is that the drug companies fund most of the studies. Um, most of them have been pulled out of academic medical centers and are done by for-profit research organizations. And that leaves the pharmaceutical industry in control of the data. And what happens is the pharmaceutical industry and the related uh, medical communications companies write up most of this data and they submit that data as the result of clinical trials to journals, the most prestigious journals in the world and whatever else other journals they uh, may publish in. They submit their manuscript to the journals and, the, and that manuscript is peer reviewed. And then it's published in the journal. And then if the research uh, techniques, uh, the study designs and so forth are acceptable, that becomes part of evidence-based medicine. What doctors don't know is that the peer reviewers and the medical journal editors have only seen the manuscript that is written up generally by the drug company itself, and they don't have access to the underlying data. So the imprimatur of peer review and publication by uh, our most respected journals, which is taken as um, you know, making something the gospel truth to, to doctors, is, is worthless. The system is completely broken. Let's assume that the souls of the doctors and scientists that work inside Big Pharma are lost. They're, they're lost souls. But how, which is a perfect segue, have the four most prestigious journals auctioned off their integrity by allowing even this to happen? What, what happened at JAMA and Cell and New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet, BMJ? What's going on at these journals where they have completely seeded what used to be a process for a commercial process? Right. That's, that's exactly the question. And we've got to get into this. If, if docs and, and, and concerned patients don't understand this, they're not going to understand what the problem is. Richard Smith was editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal for 13 years. Uh, he worked for BMJ for 25 years in total as an editor. And he wrote after he left his position as editor-in-chief, I now understand what's going on in answer to your question, exactly your question. He said, what's happening is that the journals sell reprints of commercially advantageous articles back to the drug makers to be handed out by the drug reps to the doctors as um, evidence-based medicine. So the journals, and, and this may seem like just a, a little tangential add-on to whatever the journal, journal's financial model is, that's not true. It's a major part of the most prestigious journal's income. So for example, the last data that's available from 2005 shows that 41% of the Lancet's income, 41% came from selling reprints. The New England Journal's almost certainly higher, but it won't release its data, nor will JAMA. So the journal's financial model relies on income from selling reprints back to the drug makers. So that has two terrible consequences. One is that the journals 
are not insisting upon peer review because it will compromise their attractiveness to the manufacturers to submit their commercially valuable clinical trial reports for publication if the journal itself is going to be demanding the data so they could, their peer reviewers and editors can do independent reviews. You're saying their business model put them in a vulnerable position. I'm going to read something more from the Lancet editor on top of the one I read that just a little two sentences here. Afflicted by studies with small sample sizes, tiny effects, invalid exploratory analysis, and flagrant conflicts of interest, together with an obsession for pursuing fashionable trends of dubious importance, science has taken a turn towards darkness. As one participant put it, poor methods get results. That's the Lancet editor. Mm -hmm. and, and that's absolutely right. And that's a landmark article you're reading from. He is a master of playing both sides of this. So while all that's going on and he's aware of it, the Lancet is making 41% of its revenues from selling reprints and not insisting on access to the underlying data from the clinical trials that are submitted to them that they publish. Let's talk about another relic that has been co-opted, which is leads right into RCTs. The double-blinded placebo randomized clinical trials have also auctioned off their integrity in endless ways, you say in your book, with data from major clinical trials that are manipulated, they're biased, studies are carefully designed to obtain only the desired results, endless gaming going on. So you're basically saying they're gaming not only the statistics, we'll say absolute versus relative values, but they're just completely gaming the RCT, which was, again, one sort of a holy grail, haven't they? Yeah, they have. And uh, chapter two in my book is about uh, Neurontin and the trial in U.S. District Court that I testified in. Uh, Kaiser Health System sued Pfizer. The trial was in 2010. And the short of it is that the jury found Pfizer guilty of not just fraud, but fraud and racketeering charges, RICO charges, which tripled the uh, penalties. But in my work as an expert in that litigation, and I can talk about it because it was heard in open court, so the, this information is unsealed, the most important article that convinced doctors to prescribe Neurontin for uh, diabetic neuropathy which is the, now one of the major uses of Neurontin or gabapentin, was a study that included only uh, 84 people in each of two groups. One group was treated with Neurontin, with diabetic neuropathy, and there was a control group. And the design of the study to get to your issue about can we trust these results that come from these trials that are controlled by industry, the design of this study was called forced titration which means that the people in the Neurontin group were given uh, treated with Neurontin, but went right through the FDA-approved maximum dose of 1,800, and were all their dose for all those patients was raised to 3,600 milligrams a day, twice the FDA-approved dose. Well, lo and behold, 55% of the people in the Neurontin group had side effects, which effectively unblinded them which invalidates the results of the studies. But we, we spotted that in litigation and we could get the data from the company, the underlying data that's not available to peer reviewers or medical journal editors. We got the data and a statistician reanalyzed it. And he found that if you took the patient's last visit before they experienced side effects, there was absolutely no benefit to taking Neurontin. It provided no pain relief. 
And it was only the unblinding by the side effects that created the illusion of, uh, of efficacy of, of Neurontin for treating diabetic neuropathy. Now, you might say, well, okay, no big deal. It's a small study and uh, it's easy to critique. Not so. It was published in JAMA and uh, the manufacturer hired a PR firm and created 85 million impressions of this positive result among Americans. 85 million Americans were made aware that uh, air quotes, Neurontin is effective for diabetic neuropathy. So we have this jerry-rigged study where people are forced to take twice the FDA-approved dose, 55% of them develop side effects and are unblinded. And this is what doctors knew then, and they continue to know because Neurontin, generic gab gabapentin, is still one of the most frequently prescribed drugs in the United States. It ranks between six and 10 usually on the top uh, most prescribed drugs. That's a blockbuster. A block, absolute blockbuster, and now it's generic. And to show how deep this problem is, that it's been generic for maybe 15 years or more, and that knowledge, that that misknowledge, that misleading knowledge, is so sticky that even without the drug company pushing their biased interpretation of these results, doctors still believe that it's effective even though in open court in 2010, we showed that this was a sham, but that didn't get any press. Docs don't know about it. There are review articles that are written. I've never seen this, th this fact referred to in the literature. And that's, that's how the drug companies can manipulate what doctors think they know. And you say, well, geez, if doctors would just spend more time studying or, or um, something like that, we could get out of this mess. You can't get out of this mess. You can't get out of this mess without having discovery in litigation so you can figure out what really happened. And, and it's like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. By the time you can figure out what's happened, it's already happened 10 years ago and you can't change it. That leads nicely into the statin question. Before we go to statins, I wanna talk about slow to no action by three letter agencies that move forward on worthless or even harmful drugs. So do you recommend any statins to your healthy patients? This is why I'm not taking care of patients now. I, I okay. stopped uh, to write Overdosed America back in 2002. But the, the statin story is very simple. We can make it complicated, and I could talk for an hour, five hours about it. It's a very simple story. People who have already had cardiovascular disease, you have to treat 30 of those people to prevent one heart attack or stroke for, for five years. You have to treat 30 people for five years to prevent one heart attack or stroke. And you have to treat 80 people for five years to prevent one death. For people, the, the um, primary prevention below 20% risk over 10 years, you have to treat between 100 and 120 or so people for five years to prevent a non-fatal heart attack. And it doesn't reduce the uh, mortality risk. It's a beautiful number because it makes it super clear. My, my son will start taking statins. He's 35, flat belly, runs 20 miles a week. He's got no risk of cardiovascular in our family. And he personally is not at risk. Yet he is insisting I take it, even though I've lost 45 pounds for the last five years, kept it off. My blood profile came in almost a perfect a few weeks ago. Yet he's insisting I take statins just for insurance. That's what he was taught in his Harvard residency. That's what he was taught at his Harvard fellowship. That's what he was taught at his Pritzker Medical School. 
that statins are an undeniable, the sky is blue and statins are good. Absolutely. And I teach at Harvard Medical School and I watch the students getting taught this stuff. The, the numbers I just gave you are numbers needed to treat. They don't say whether you should take it or not, but they tell you what the small benefit it is if you do take it. And, and if, if I were practicing, I would explain to my patients that that was the case and uh, they should make the decision. <laughs> and that the risk of side effects is not known because the companies haven't looked for them, but the general sense is that about 20% of people have side effects. But here's the key, Ron. The reason why your son believes that is because the articles that were published in the journal said that, and then the guidelines that were published by both conflicted organizations like the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology and non-conflicted organizations like the United States Pre Preventive Screening Task Force all say that statins are effective. But I know that the information that the people who wrote those guidelines relied upon is no greater than the articles, the information that was presented in the articles that were published that weren't peer reviewed. They had no access to the primary data. And I know this for the government sponsored guidelines because I found an error, a big error in the USPSTF guidelines from 2016, an error that doubled the amount of benefit that the US sponsored guidelines said uh, statins provide. It doubled the benefit. And I know because I was on a conference call explaining this error to the people who run the USPSTF and they explained to me that the way they get their data is that they ask the lead investigators to send them the results, the bottom line results of the studies. That's the extent of their inquiry into the integrity of the data that have been presented as evidence-based medicine. I had Malcolm Kendrick on our show twice just before this show, and yeah. he's written two books about the statin hypothesis and the cholesterol hypothesis are both wrong. And he gives a little different take on it, but same thing. If you're 100% religious and reliable, taking all your statins for five years, you add three days of life if you're healthy. If you're not healthy, you add maybe six days of life. So it's the same thing you said, but it's just almost like a joke. It's the same thing. And Malcolm and I look at different sides of the coin. He's looking at the evidence that shows you how to reduce your risk of heart disease. And I'm looking at the quality of the knowledge that doctors are relying on to believe they know who should take statins. So I'm an expert in what we don't know, what we think we know, but we don't know. Yes, my son, when he heard that podcast said, a statin denier is basically equivalent to a climate denier. And he might say the same of you, even though you taught at the hospital that he is working at currently and finishing his fellowship at, but it's gonna be a little maybe harder to debate you. Will you, do, uh, will you do me a favor? Will you send him a book? Or well, I'll send him a book. No, no, of course I will. Uh, Happy to. And, and it's all, the, the footnotes are all there. If any, you know, he can go chase whatever facts he wants. Okay, so let's talk about most commonly used from pain medication, steroids. What are your thoughts on steroids? Steroids for? For pain. For pain? Ouch. For acute pain, somebody comes in with um, acute sciatica that's just debilitating. Uh, a short course of steroids might be helpful for that. 
um, and then you get pain from um, traumatic arthritis and other uh, short-term problems. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes steroids are useful, but long-term, absolutely not. We could have a whole show on just negligible value drugs. Yeah. You know, I just want to go back to this fact that I cited before, which is really important, that a lot of people look to the United Americans, especially look, look at our healthcare system and say, well, wait a minute, Abramson's uh, complaining about all this stuff, but we're the world leaders in innovation and we, the world looks to us to develop new drugs and, and improve the health of uh, global citizens. The fact is that only one out of four of the new molecular entities that are approved by the FDA, so it's about 30 drugs a year, only one out of four of those is actually an improvement over previously available therapy. And because we don't have health technology assessment and because uh, the articles aren't peer reviewed and the people who write the guidelines don't have access to the data, doctors have no way of knowing which one of those four drugs are effective. Hmm. It's like playing pin the tail on the donkey. So it's, a, it's an impossible game to win. They don't have yeah. time. They're too busy typing in their EHR to do with it. To yeah, with no, it. it's it's not. They are too busy in their EHR and they're too busy. There's too much information and they're getting pressured by the administrative people, all those things. If they had an infinite amount of time, they couldn't figure it out because the, you need a subpoena to figure it out. Hmm. It's You just can't get the information. Let's talk about the drug and device reps that are out floating in the ecosphere out there. They are mm -hmm. also trained to game the system where they used to be a source of good evidence-based solid information, but today they're simply, well, they are expanders of the lie. I'm going to tell you a quick story. A friend of mine told me yesterday, he wanted me to get on this show that is probably pretty typical. So an AbbVD rep walks into his office a couple of days ago, pushing Brylar for bipolar one. He said they gave him a coupon for commercial payers that will help pay off their deductible at $3,000 if they use the coupon. I told him that was the most shady blank I've ever heard in a long time. Have you ever heard of this, Ron? And I said, well, that's a good one to pose to Dr. John Abramson. So the games that the pharma reps play are endless, aren't they? They are. And that's exactly right. I mean, when I was a kid, my mother told me, don't take any free cigarettes from kids on the uh, playground because they're just trying to get you dependent on the dope. And that's what this coupon um, game is about. And let me just broaden this issue because your friend complaining about AbbVie giving free or coupons or discount coupons for copays is it's exactly as you're saying, it undermines whatever market discipline, discipline is left in our system. It's just perfectly designed to undermine the function of the market. But here's where it gets really tough. In, um, I have a chapter on diabetes and, and how much money we're wasting on uh, insulin analogs, the latest generation bioengineered uh, insulin for type two diabetics. But this movement to control drug prices is getting focused politically on capping the copay for insulins. This is the issue you're talking about. So people will only have to pay $35 a month for their copay for insulin, and that'll take the financial pressure of people whose insurance doesn't has a high copay for the expense of insulins. And it, it, that's a cause with merit. I mean, there are people who are struggling to pay their copays, and I'm sympathetic with them, especially the ones who have type 1 diabetes. But the people who have type 2 diabetes, the doctors have been completely manipulated into thinking that insulin analogs are superior for people with type 2 diabetes when they're not. The evidence is not that. 
and the um, we can go deeper into this if you want to, but the nonprofit organizations have worked with the doctors organizations to create these standards of care for people with type two diabetes, and they're they're just not valid and and recombinant human insulin the first generation of bioengineered insulin does just as well for people with type 2 diabetes for maybe 35 or 50 dollars a vial compared to the insulin analogs for 250 or 300 dollars a vial this motion this bill that was passed in the house to limit insulin copays to 35 dollars is a complete sham to undermine the market because Biosimilar insulins, uh, it's called biosimilar, it's like generic for a pill, but when you have a biologically developed uh, therapeutic, it's called biosimilar instead of generic, but it means the same thing. Biosimilar insulins are coming on board, even for the insulin analogs, the expensive ones, that will cost $35 a month, are coming on board in a couple of years, one year, two years. So what this bill is doing ostensibly acting to protect people from high co-pays from insulin so they can get their insulin, which is a good thing for sure, is that they're ensuring that the market won't work to motivate people to go to less expensive insulins and their doctors can say to them, oh, don't worry about going to biosimilar insulin because the um, $300 a vial insulin that I've been prescribing for you will only cost you $35 a month. It, it's, it's just so anti-capitalist, it's so anti-market, and that our politicians are willing to support this, Democrat and Republican, shows how deeply the pharmaceutical industry has gotten into the heads of our legislators so much more deeply than they can understand. And it makes you want to throw up your hands sometimes. Yeah, so hypnotism. Before we get into your solutions for all of this mess, and we haven't even gotten into the half of it because there's more, but we are limited on our time. I'm going to offer my solutions that I think are a little simpler than yours. May I take a shot at it? Please. And I hope I learned something here. Well, I don't think you're going to learn anything from Ron Barshop. I'm not a doctor, but what if every doctor or surgeon, like a NASCAR driver, had to list with the size of the logo on their white coat? who sponsors them? What if every medical journal had to do the same on its cover by order of percentage that they get from that drug company? They had to slap a logo on the front of that medical journal and the front of their website. And what if every boarded society had to do the exact same thing to logo identify their support they get in every visible way that they show themselves? And the last one I'm going to throw in is medical charities who have also been co-opted, American Diabetes, et cetera, American Heart, but they're not really searching for cures anymore. What they're doing is searching for investments in startups that do search for cures. So they call it social venture investing, but they're largely, again, also funded by the big pharma as well. And if we had to slap a logo in proportion to the gift they get or the support they get from big pharma, do you think that might be a possible solution to waking us up? Yeah, I think it's necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. I, I think those four suggestions are, are absolutely spot on. And what's happened, let, let's just start with the first one. We, we can do them all. But the first one, there's a wonderful, uh, there was an article in 1982 in the journal Science that marked the transition of commercial sponsorship being not only acceptable, but a matter of prestige within academic medical centers that there was a transition at that point. And if you want, we can talk about what led to it. But this article is a masterpiece of explaining what happened. 
And the, the, the key quote in 1982 is that academic researchers who 10 years ago would have snubbed their noses at industrial money now eagerly seek it out. And not only do they eagerly seek it out, but it's a matter of prestige and it's a matter of promotion. So declaring those conflicts of interest is you know, 100% essential for any kind of honest dialogue. But with a little bit of good PR work, they can turn it into a matter of prestige instead of a matter of public caution. Yeah, Jonas Salk famously turned his patent over for $1 for penicillin. Banting turned his in for insulin exactly. over for because it was good for society and they didn't want to pollute themselves with money. They did fine in life, but they didn't live you know, billionaire lives they could have lived. Right. And to, to make it clear, you don't have to play by these rules. Peter Hotez, who's a vaccine expert, I think at Baylor, is developing or has developed a COVID vaccine that he's not going to patent. So it's not like you have to play by these rules, but if you don't want to be a billionaire, you can't play by these rules. Your solutions that you get into, John, are, it's almost like you're pushing not the boulder up the mountain, you're pushing the mountain up the mountain. Let's go through these quickly if we can, because we do have a hard stop in 10 minutes. So step one is that you want to talk about, to solve all this, impediments to universal coverage. You want to go there right now or you want to skip that one? I want to skip it because we can't get to universal coverage until we stop wasting a trillion and a half dollars a year. Yeah. What, what the people who want uh, Medicare for all now with the current state of our healthcare system are saying is that the government should socialize the $1.5 trillion a year. It's like build back better every year, not 10 years. The government should socialize that $1.5 trillion in waste, hand it over to industry and let the American taxpayers pay for what will continue to be the same bad health care. I come to 1.5 trillion from a different way. Rosen Hotels is one of my favorite guests. If you just took their cost for employee, their employee contribution, their deductible, we would shave a billion, uh, sorry, a trillion five off our health care. So we don't have a problem with the healthcare system. We just have a bloated series of middles that are feeding off our healthcare system. I disagree. I, the first part of your statement is true. Um, it's the bloated middles, including the pharmaceutical industry, you know, including all the ways that knowledge gets to doctors. Mm -hmm. But we do have a dysfunctional healthcare system. Americans in, in 2000, the healthy life expectancy of Americans was 38th in the world. And since that time, we have been spending excess at a rate that now has reached uh, 1.5 trillion. We, we ranked 38th in 2000. We rank now before the pandemic, we rank 68th in the world in healthy life expectancy. I saw we're right between Costa Rica and Slovenia. Good for uh, us. Yeah, no, it's a third world country. I mean, yeah. this, it, it's bad what's going on here. And, and we can't have this discussion without keeping in the foreground that we are not getting the health that we're promised by paying this much money. So, so of all your recommendations, which is the easiest to implement, if any? Um, you talk about let's rebalance the why of medical research. We're not even asking on the front end, why are we even doing this research? You're, we're just doing it to make more money or to make pharma more money. How would you rebalance the why of medical research? Well, that's an easy one. Okay. If people would believe in government just a little bit, there could be um, a board like the Federal Reserve Board that could assess Americans' healthcare needs, why we're 68th in the world instead of the top 10, and assess what it is we need to know more about to implement a program that would get Americans 
to the health that we deserve. And then we could allocate our research funds to figure out how to do that. Right now, we allocate our research funds by how to maximize the profits that are returned to the investors. That's, that's the entire way we set our clinical research. Yeah, you talk about uh, reversing lifestyle diseases by changing how we live our lives, by how we move, we breathe, we eat, we sleep. We spend less than 1% of 1% on lifestyle management uh, with the CDC. Precisely. That's exactly right. And why do doctors who really, 99% of the doctors are really want to do the right thing, why do they do that? They do it because the knowledge that they receive is 96% about drugs and devices, and they think that that's their job. And the real solution to this is to broaden this issue to get doctors to understand that no, their job is not to know how to use the latest drugs. Their job is to know how to help their patients achieve the best health. Okay, so we get a Federal Reserve Board for care, or the why of care. Now, the second one, this one really seems so easy, but it's you're facing the headwinds of the greatest lobbyists on the planet. And this one is to have all clinical trial data as open source for authors, peer reviewers, and editors of journals. That just seems so easy, but it, you're, you're actually fighting the biggest lobby on earth to get that done. That's exactly right. And if we just break that down to a very easy, almost costless solution, uh, 86% of perfect solution, when a company does a clinical trial, they put their results together into what's called a clinical study report that we would get. The first thing I would ask for in litigation would be the clinical study report, which is about 3000 pages long. And it contains about 86% of the information that you could glean if you got the raw data. Now, there is no reason in the world why journals don't require submission of the clinical study report that's already been prepared along with the manuscript. There's no reason in the world. And I've spoken with an editor of a good journal and asked why. And the answer was that it would hurt our business. Mm. So the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors, which is the body that would take a stand that pre-publication transparency for peer reviewers is absolutely mandatory. They don't want to take that stand because it's bad for their business model. Well, coming up from another angle, you mentioned ICEMRA, which is a coalition of all the regulation agencies, regulatory agencies across the world was basically, they wanted to do exactly what you're saying here. And they FDA completely yawned and ignored this coalition. Well, they sort of agreed, and but their fingers were crossed behind their back. Yeah. And they didn't do it. So that's just a classical example of market failure. The public's getting cheated while the uh, individual, the, the, the players in the system are making a lot of money. And you need intervention for market failure. It doesn't heal itself. Let's talk about direct-to-consumer information versus misleading. That seems like an FCC easy fix. You can't put it on American. Now, only two countries, New Zealand and America, allow direct-to-consumer advertising. And it's unlimited. And it's a big source of revenue for not only local, but national channels. So direct-to-consumer information versus misleading that you mentioned there, how many need to benefit for treatment for one to benefit? What you talked about earlier in the show, you, you said through Licity, you need 107, is 170 times more expensive than metformin cost, but it's not more effective. So that's an example that could be in an ad, to be forced to be in an ad. 
Yes, when when they're arguing that Trulicity is uh, better than other diabetes drugs because it not only reduces blood sugar, but it statistically significantly reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease, you should have to say in the ad that you have to treat 323 diabetics with Trulicity for three years in order to prevent one cardiovascular event at a cost of about $2 million per event prevented. You should have to say that. And you also mentioned the number 99.7% are never going to see a benefit for cardiovascular from Trulicity. That should be right. the That's attitude. the inverse of the 323 yeah. number. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Again, seems like a simple FCC fix. Inform, don't mislead, or we're going to pull your ad. You talk about government oversight for an efficient market, but what's woven in this whole conversation, John, is that the FDA, the CDC, they've left us deer in the headlights, us consumers. We are not really being protected by our three-letter agencies. I don't feel protected after pandemic, for sure, and I don't think we were protected before the pandemic. You're asking yet for more government oversight for an efficient market, and I don't see where you're coming from. Fair enough, because I left out a step, which is that what we have right now in the American healthcare system is an example of how capitalism goes off the rails when, they're not, when there are not guardrails to protect the uh, public. Now, Milton Friedman, who's the avatar of the free market, um, who was Ronald Reagan's guru of economic guidance, said there should only be three legitimate functions of government, defense, ensure that contracts are honored and maintain law and order. He said, those are the only three legitimate functions of government. Now that's about as bare bones as you can get in terms of laissez-faire capitalism. If we simply did those things, if we simply ensured that contracts were honored in the sense of you're promising to improve healthcare for an efficient uh, price, if we simply enforce that, and when people break the law, they don't just have to pay 1% of their profits, they go to jail like ordinary people who break the law. When they sell drugs that, like Vioxx that killed 40 to 60,000 Americans and they knew what they were doing, they knew about the cardiovascular risk that they were hiding all those years, That's all, they've broken the law, they're criminals. If you or I killed 40 or 60,000 people, it's pretty clear what would happen to us. I really think of your book as you're unveiling a giant long con, you're unveiling a giant influence peddling story. It's a giant murder mystery, but it's really a giant heist is what it is. It's a financial heist of epic proportions never seen in history. We're talking trillions. Trillions a year. Yeah. You know, it's, I say 1.5, but the I recalculated a couple of weeks ago, it's 1.7 now. Yeah. It's a heist. That's exactly right. And the real heist, the core of this heist, is the idea that you presented, and I agree with you, that few the trust of Americans in government is near an all-time low, and government has not functioned. The regulators have been captured. The legislators have been captured by industry. It's a mess. But if we leave it a mess and say it can't be repaired by government, we will not have a democracy. And we're right on the border of that. Yeah. So that's the passion that I bring to writing this book is to say, look, I, I know about healthcare. I, I, I've worked in it a long time and, and I know what's going on behind the scenes because I was an expert in litigation. But what I'm really trying to say is we won't have a democracy if we can't fix this. Mm -hmm. 
and and it's an uphill climb, I admit. It's a perfect note to end this on. I'm going to call you another time and work out a lot of these statistics so that we can summarize this simply on another website. I think telling this story in clean, simple bullet points is going to be powerful to get you on more media. What is your final message? If you could fly a banner overhead to America and how do people find you? They can find me at my email address, which is John underscore Abramson. I'm in the generation that uses email. <laughs> uh, John underscore Abramson at HMS. That stands for Harvard Medical School dot Harvard dot EDU. Great. And then what is your banner over America? If you could get one message simply for most Americans. Okay. And this is simple. It's a mess. American healthcare is a mess. 80% of your health is determined by how you live your life. Yes. Don't fall for the false promise that not taking care of yourself can be fixed by medical innovation. The best healthcare that you can have, 80% of it is in your hands. Take responsibility, make those changes. And if you can't make those changes and they're very hard to make, I know this, I was a primary care doc for 20 years. If you can't make those changes, find somebody who can help you do it. Start with your primary care doc, go to a health coach, just get help because our system is designed for your healthcare to spin off maximum profits for investors, not maximum health for you. And you can take local control of your own approach to health. And it's, it's, it's virtually an emergency that you do that. A steal from James Carville and says it's about the lifestyle, not the pill dummy. Yep. Yep. Okay. Thank you so much. Can't wait to get you back on the show again to further flesh these out. There's so much more to talk about, but thanks for your time and good luck with this book. This is an important book. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.